to the PaxX Podcast, available on iTunes. This is episode 42 of the show where we talk about everything to do with the passenger experience. I'm Mary Kirby, and I'm joined by my co-host, Max Flight. Max, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, Mary. We've got a new year, 2017. We get to start all over again, I guess. We do, and it is a pleasure to be working with you here in 2017, Max. Likewise. Thank you. Well, before we get started, we'd like to thank eGate Solutions for sponsoring this week's podcast. We all want happy passengers. They buy more and they're likely to be more loyal to your airline. But delivering a positive passenger experience is hard when you're relying on legacy systems and manual processes. eGate Solutions provides the technology behind onboard services, connecting and automating every step of an airline's operations from the warehouse to the passenger. With eGate, you can spend less time and money on the process and more on optimizing the passenger experience, which really is what we are all in the business of delivering. Visit eGate Solutions online at www.egate-solutions.com or email them at info at egate-solutions to learn more. Now, it's my great pleasure to introduce our guest today. Paul Thompson is an aviation and travel journalist for Airways Magazine and Travel Pulse and a 15-year airline industry veteran. I've had the pleasure of knowing Paul for many years now. Welcome to the show, Paul. Uh, good morning, Max and Mary. Uh, it's exciting to be here today. Um, it's my first PaxX podcast, so thanks for inviting me to be on the show with you. No, it's a pleasure to be talking with you. I'm a big fan of Airways Magazine. I know many people who contribute. And in fact, managing editor Chris Sloan was a guest on the Airplane Geeks podcast way back in 2014 when Archive and Airways Magazine were coming together. So it's great to be talking with you. Thank you very much. All right. Well, let's take a look at some of the PaxX news stories making headlines. First, United Airlines has announced it will retire its 747s from scheduled service sooner than previously planned. The carrier's last 747 will stop flying for United in the fourth quarter of this year, 2017. Paul, what do you think makes this aircraft so iconic to passengers and av geeks around the world? And do you have any fond memories associated with the queen of the skies? I sure do. Um, Well, 747, it was the largest airliner in the sky for about 35 years until the A380 came along. And Ever since it's been around, it's kind of struck awe into the people who've seen it. You know, it turns heads everywhere it goes. Um, No other plane, in my opinion, just sparks that sense of grandeur and royalty. Uh, It's even more nostalgic for us aviation geeks who know about its development and how Boeing literally mortgaged the company to finance it. Um, You know, the story of Joe Sutter and his band of Incredibles. Um, On a personal note, two of my most fond memories are tied to 747s. When I was about fifth grade, my family flew to London on spring break, and our aircraft going over was a Pan Am 747. At sunrise, um, just before breakfast, my brother and I were invited to visit the flight deck, and so we got to see the sunrise and the Atlantic Ocean below us, and I'd never been inside such a large cockpit before, and the number of buttons and gauges and everything was mind-blowing. But more recently, I had my first upper deck experience on a 747. Um, I was going over to London once again, but this time with British Airways, and I was in Club World, but at that point, it was the nicest airplane seat I'd ever flown in, and um, being up there on the upper deck with just a handful of people just felt really exclusive, and I, I think I smiled the whole time during the flight. <laughs> I think the uh, the kind of the fondest memory I have of the 747 was actually the first uh, time I saw a United 747-400. In fact, it was the first United 747-400. And I was visiting a friend who was a manager in the catering business serving airlines. And he had ramp access at SFO. And he said to me, I want to show you something kind of exciting. And he wouldn't tell me what it was. 
Well, he had the access, so we drove right up to that first United 747-400, and it was just spectacular to see. I, I think, I'm not sure, but I think it was uh, delivered in January 1990, so it was some time ago, but an exciting uh, a view of a magnificent aircraft. I mean, it really is. It it really is magnificent. It, I mean, Queen of the Sky is such a deserved ta- tagline for this beautiful, beautiful bird. Yeah. My own little personal story is that uh, when my family was moving from Ireland to the United States, when I was a little girl, we flew, and uh, the jumbo jet is what everyone would call it. You know, it was kind of the the original jumbo, and um, and I have kind of this memory of actually a lot of smoke in the cabin because smoking was still <laughs> a thing <laughs> yeah. at the time, yeah. and this is kind of like air of smoke everywhere and everybody with a cigarette. Uh, that's kind of my memory, but uh, but of a kind of a, a very large cabin. And still, I guess, uh, back in, in, at that point, back in the 80s, kind of a, a bit more of an excitement about travel than perhaps you might have today. There's There seems to be an economy class and you know, there's lots of reasons for this, but um, but kind of less of that, perhaps enthusiasm, I guess, you know, for flight, uh, in part because of uh, how tight things are getting down in the back of the aircraft. And um, so one thing we've noticed with respect to yesterday's announcement uh, that United is doing uh, an earlier retirement of the 747 is kind of some passengers also bemoaning the fact that it's part of a transition, obviously, to these kind of Tenebrest triple sevens. So it's kind of bittersweet because there's a lot of very fond memories of the 747, but we're moving into kind of a new era and uh, a new era that also includes kind of a very tight configuration (laughs) in aircraft. In aircraft. Um, But it also is is interesting to see that we're seeing a lot of, obviously, these retirements um, of the 74 at a time when also the A380 uh, is struggling. We're seeing cuts in production, um, not as many customers, obviously, as Airbus had hoped. Paul, have you had a chance to fly the A380 yet? I've flown it once um, when Lufthansa introduced it on their Frankfurt JFK route, and I think about 2012. I uh, had an economy seat in the aisle, and I found it very nice. Um, it was a you know very comfortable flight and very quiet, from what I remember, um, as compared to some of the other international flights I had taken. Yeah, yeah, I think that uh, Airbus had hoped that it would be able to uh, kind of convince passengers that they should start trying to book their flights based on the aircraft type because the A380 is such a comfortable aircraft. I always liken it to kind of like a flying couch. It's so quiet for being (laughs) such a huge aircraft. And the seats are comfortable because they actually have that 18-inch width uh, standard that Airbus tries to uphold, although we're going to see in the coming years – tighter configurations obviously attempted in Airbus aircraft, but they right now have that wider 18-inch seat. Uh, On the uh, A380, it's such a nice experience. But there is just something unique about obviously the uh, just the memories that people have with the Queen of the Skies, with the 747, and with the silhouette. I mean, it is kind of a fun, funky-looking aircraft even to this day. Do you agree, Max? <laughs> oh, it absolutely is. I mean, the, the A380 is spectacular in its own way as well, but mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure that it's going to ever take on the mantle that the, the 747 had, if for no other reason than the fact that I don't think we're going to see the A380 in numbers anywhere near what we saw with the with the 747. Of course, we have some 
production rate issues with the A380, some pushouts by Emirates and uh, and so forth. So uh, the future of the A380 is, is not quite so certain, but I guess we'll see if it uh, has the lifespan uh, and the importance uh, long-term that the 747 had. Yeah, we shall see. We shall see. You're right. It's it's quite it's quite a unique and stunning aircraft in its own right. Double decker, of course. And I, personally, I have to say, one of the best experiences I've ever had in flight was on a an A380, actually, between uh, Dubai and Toronto. But that had a lot to do also with the service and the the very good luck of getting into business class on that route, which uh, of course you're treated treated like a king or a queen. <laughs> But um, I guess, you know, fond farewell anyways as the 747 uh, starts exiting our skies from a commercial standpoint. Yes. All right. Well, next, Paul was interviewed recently for a CNN article. It was co-written by Tom Patterson, who I actually had the pleasure of meeting at last year's Aviation Geek Fest in Seattle. He's a great guy. Uh, But the article is about how a baggage handler became trapped in the cargo hold of an Embraer Regional jet flying his United Express Flight 6060 from Charlotte, North Carolina to Washington Dulles International Airport. Paul, in the end, the man was not harmed, but as a longtime ramp agent, it surprised you that this would happen. What's the protocol that ramp agents follow to ensure coworkers stay safe? Uh, well, uh, well, at my airline, we work with the same gate crew and the same gate all day long. I can't really speak to, you know, Mesa's procedures where this incident occurred, but for us, it's very easy because you're expecting the same people to be there at your gate. You know, you work together in cooperation. There's Everybody has a system of tasks and procedures that we use to make sure the flight gets loaded efficiently and on time. Um, so for us, it would certainly be uh, a flag would go up if someone weren't around at departure time when they should be assisting um, with helping get the plane out. Um, I know at some airlines, uh, like SkyWest, for example, here in Denver, um, they use contract ramp agents. So their agents often hop from gate to gate throughout the day. So that would make it a lot easier for someone to go missing. And it wouldn't necessarily draw particular attention to that person being gone. Um, people do take naps in the cargo bins. Um, especially really? While- yes. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty frequently. And that's when... You know, you have people who pick up a lot of extra hours and, you know, some of these people are making 12 bucks an hour and kind of struggling to get by. So they're just racking up the hours and, you know, they're resting whenever they have a chance. And if they're working double shifts every day, um, it's, it's really exhausting work. You know, it's manual labor. You're lifting a lot. Um, we're not supposed to do it, um, of course, but it happens all the time. But with the ERJ-170 not being that big of a plane, I'm still pretty confused on how someone who could have remained in that cargo bin unseen when the doors were closed. Hmm. That's interesting. I wonder if there was sleep involved there as well. That's my hunch. Um, I don't know how else. I mean, unless someone actually just shoved him in there and slammed the door. But on our 737s, we have a latch from the inside you can actually open um, if you were to get stuck in there. So I don't know if the RJ-170 has that feature or not. Hmm. Paul, it is a tough job. I mean, are there are there things that you you need to do to think about your health when you're, uh, you know, working these types of hours and, and lifting in this way? I mean, is it is it really essential to kind of have certain routines and whatnot? Um, what's the thinking behind all of that? Um, yeah, there's absolutely a focus on your health. Um, we're taught a lot of ergonomic stuff on how to lift properly, you know, bending with your knees, not with your back. 
Um, in the summertime, they especially focus on hydration. You know, even though it doesn't get super hot here, it's dry a lot. And, you know, they, they even pass out water bottles, um, you know, reusable water bottles to everybody um, in the beginning of the summer. Um, just, you know, to get that focus on staying hydrated, um, you know, they encourage us to, you know, take snacks and stuff between flights. And you don't want to go, you know, have all your energy wear out and crash in the middle of the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paul, you mentioned that many airlines or some airlines subcontract this kind of work. And I understand in this particular case, the baggage handler uh, works for Texas-based G2 Secure Staff. Now, uh, this isn't a particularly small company. According to their website, they employ over 6,000 aviation service professionals at 54 uh, different airports throughout the United States. So it's a it's a big company. They do a lot of services besides uh, ground handling. They do cabin cleaning and uh, customer assistance services. They also have some security solutions. But it's a big company, and you would think that a, a, a large company like that would have instituted good procedures uh, to prevent situations like this from happening. So I guess the the task before the FAA, who I understand is investigating this, is does G2 secure staff have the proper procedures and and were they followed? Were they actually followed? So I guess we'll have to watch for that uh, assessment. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, I've had coworkers, you know, join my airline coming from other airlines and you know, being contractors, they don't necessarily have that buy-in, you know, where they don't receive the flight benefits and the good medical benefits that we do at my airline. So maybe there's something that could possibly be said about, you know, the work ethic or how they actually feel about um, the job they're doing for that company. Mm-hmm. It's hard to say. Paul, I, just out of curiosity, I'm sure you see a lot um, in terms of what people try to <laughs> to bring. Are you able to give us any uh, information as to kind of some of the more interesting uh, things that people pack in that cargo hold? <laughs> One of the most interesting things I've seen was a cardboard cutout of a, some race car driver. I think it was a Formula One driver. Uh, we took it off the plane, and it was a stand-up, you know, six-foot-tall thing. So I actually took a selfie with it because I thought it was funny. Um, (laughs) people bring, you know, large standing bass, you know, musical instruments and kayaks. And this time of year, especially here in Denver, we could have 30 or 40 bags of skis and snowboards come off flights because everybody's going out to the mountains. So it it really ranges from, um, you know, seasonally, but we also ship some really strange cargo too, like all sorts of, you know, human uh, remains and, you know, samples for medical supplies and things like that. Oh, wow. wow. And what and what about the animals? I mean, you know, we, we were talking about this guy and thank goodness he was okay. Um, but there obviously are a number of animals that die in cargo holds every year. Some carriers, of course, are no longer taking dogs uh, and cats uh, because of that reason. Are you still seeing a lot of animals now, Paul? Well, um, my airline doesn't accept pets in the cargo bin. Um, yeah. They do accept them in the cabin, but we ship a lot of animals like tro- mostly tropical fish or, um, you know, live crabs and things like that. So there are live critters that go down there. Um, I've, I haven't heard of many incidents where they've suffered. <laughs> okay. But um, we do reptiles and I've, I was downloading one shipment and the box said live ball python or something like that. I was like, whoa, there's a snake. <laughs> <laughs> but you just, you know, push it off like any other box and um, it goes on its way. Right. 
Paul, uh, because you have the perspective of uh, seeing seeing all the cargo, the baggage from uh, from that end, do you have any particular tips for people in terms of uh, what they should do or not do to ensure that their uh, their luggage is well protected? Don't overstuff your suitcase. I think that's the biggest thing because when it's when it's overpacked, your your zippers might bust open, and I've seen it happen numerous times. Um, you know, my favorite suitcases are the ones that are just the big rectangle 22 inch ones because they're really easy to stack underneath there but when you have these oblong shaped you know there's some that are kind of like a parallelogram they have this weird leaning shape and these giant duffel bags that are only half full and they're they're really weird they become kind of cumbersome to deal with so you know just the standard suitcases soft or hard side those are the best ones to use in my opinion what what happens at that point if a bag busts open how do you guys manage it um, we will, you know, collect all the belongings, try to stuff them back in there as best we can. And if we can zip, get it zipped, we will. Otherwise, we'll um, find a trash bag, wrap up the whole bag, tie it, and then we'll send it um, straight to the baggage service office. So when the passenger comes looking for their bag, the agent um, with customer service can tell them, you know, we're sorry this happened. But, you know, it, I don't know what happens at that point if they <laughs> reimburse the customer because their bag was too full or how that all works out. Um <sighs> You know, you would- I'm going to guess no. <laughs> <laughs> One other question that I might ask Paul is that it always seems, well, maybe not always, but quite often it seems like it takes a long time for a baggage to show up uh, at the carousel. What's the the long pole in that tent? What's the part of the process that that takes the longest, represents the you know biggest delay in the passengers actually getting your bags back? Well, for us, you know, we fly two different sizes of 737s. Um, the 800 being the longer plane, it can hold up to 300 bags, especially during the holidays. So it can take, you know, a good 15, 20 minutes to get all the bags off. And then here in Denver, the baggage claim from our terminal is about an eight-minute drive. And then you have to get all those bags uploaded on the carousel. So you're looking at 30 to 40 minutes. Um, in many airports, the baggage carousels are a lot closer to the terminal, so that time can be reduced. But um, here in Denver, you know, Concourse C, we're the furthest away from where the passengers collect their bags, and it can take um, quite a bit of time. Oh my gosh! I recently transited via Denver, and uh, I was really impressed with the operation in the snow, of course, because you guys are used to getting quite a lot of it, and. Um, it's just kind of fascinating to watch. It's down to a well-oiled machine, even with snow everywhere, really, isn't it? Yeah, Denver has an armada of snow-removing vehicles. <laughs> they even have these giant machines that will melt snow, where they'll just dump it in with bulldozers from the top, and it just turns into steam. It's really cool to watch, these giant clouds of steam going up. Um, they're really good about clearing runways here. We actually have more problems with cancellations and delays from wind than we do uh, with snow. And just lastly, I'm kind of curious as to like, you know, because it really does get bitterly cold. Um, I spent a few seconds feeling that cold on the way into the aircraft. Um, what are you wearing then? What, are, are you in like multiple layers then when you're outside to, to manage all of this? Yeah, they give us a lot um, in, our, in our uniform allotment. They give us a lot of money to, to buy, you know, heavy winter gear, parkas and waterproof clothes. But, you know, beneath that, you know, wear a long sleeve shirt, sometimes thermals, and as well as a hoodie type sweatshirt. And then we have, you know, our winter gloves, and I wear snow boots that are well lined for water as well. And, you know, always wear a, some sort of wool cap or beanie or one of those funny looking hunter caps with the ear flaps on them, <laughs> whatever 
whatever works. <laughs> cool. Wow. Yeah, Paul, you're you're making me want to uh, ask everybody to uh, sometimes uh, hug their uh, baggage handler for all the yes. hard work and the difficult conditions. But amen. Well, let's move on, and uh, as our last item, let's talk about Lufthansa Technik, the massive MRO arm of Lufthansa Group, and they're gearing up to host the LHT AV Days for media again. Paul, you've attended this event in Germany in the past. Tell us, what's it about and what did you learn about Technique's role in the passenger experience? A lot of our time with Technic, um, when I went in 2015, it was focused on their aircraft maintenance. Um, it was fascinating to visit their repair and overhaul shops. We saw them working on everything from engines to the pilot oxygen systems, where we actually got to try on the masks and take a few breaths of pure oxygen and the Airbus masks in particular, they suction themselves to your face. So it's kind of a strange sensation, um, but it was a neat experience. We also saw them working on their lavatory toilets, you know, overhauling those, getting them all cleaned up. And they, were, they had a collection of interesting things that had fallen down the toilets over the years that they had collected, uh, such as, you know, jewelry and eyeglasses, um, stuff like that. But um, they showed us how they use ultraviolet light to check for weaknesses or imperfections in engine parts, which I found really fascinating. And then um, we also visited their showroom of aircraft interior fittings, which are developed in-house. At that time, I wasn't aware that Lufthansa did much of that um, compared to some of the other outfitters. But airlines can go there and choose you know, things, everything from seats to entertainment systems to be fit out um, for their fleets. Last year, um, Lufthansa Systems even won a Crystal Cabin Award for their portable uh, Board Connect IFE system. So they're not only joining other providers, but they're also innovating the industry, which gains a lot of attention for them. But I also learned that uh, Technic, they do makeovers for other airlines, or interior makeovers for other airlines. Uh, we saw a couple other different fleets um, within their hangars. So after our media day, or as part of the media day, they had sort of an air show for AvGeeks where they had an Airbus Beluga cargo plane and some other historic planes such as a uh, Lockheed Constellation. And they had their JU-52 on hand, which we actually got to fly in for a time over Hamburg. So it was such a great experience and hoping to be able to do that again sometime soon. It actually, it's, it sounds a little bit almost like kind of the AvGeek Fest. Out in Seattle, <laughs> in terms of like on the other side of the pond. Um, had a very similar feel. Yeah, did it really? That's fantastic. I, I haven't had a chance to go yet, although I know some people that are, are getting ready to go. Um, I think it's coming up here in March. And I'm told that everything this year is going to be about in-flight connectivity, uh, with Lufthansa Technic asking the question, is it enough to drill only four holes in the fuselage to install a broadband antenna? How demanding is it to modify more than 100 aircraft in one winter period? Uh, what are the condition analytics? And on and on, they're going to try and answer these questions for media that are going to be there because Lufthansa Technic is um, managing, spearheading, and, and, and doing the work of installing the new Imarsat Global Express in-flight connectivity system across the Lufthansa Group's short and medium haul fleet. And they right now have six lines running around the world installing this system. And the latest figure is that 22 aircraft in the Lufthansa uh, short haul fleet has been fitted. Uh, 
they're starting with the uh, Euro wings and the German wings uh, units, and then they expect for Lufthansa legacy uh, short haul to be finished in uh, 2018. A bit of an arduous process, but you're right, Paul. They have their fingers in so many things because they do obviously maintenance, repair, and overhaul. They're fitting a lot of these systems now to their own aircraft, and they fit obviously systems to other aircraft and the interiors, as you say, and they develop their own. Um, so we've we've kind of been uh, educated uh, when we go to these aircraft interiors expos to learn that uh, that Lufthansa Technic even has its own uh, in-flight entertainment system and its own, uh, you know, they have their own cabin management systems. And they're really, uh, they've really got their fingers in a lot of pies. It's, it's kind of fascinating to see. Um, how about you, Max? Have you, have you had any exposure to Technic? They, they've become such a behemoth in this uh, MRO, <laughs> MRO world. Yes, and they have an outstanding reputation for the, the quality of the work that they perform. And it's been that way for, for quite a while. Uh, yeah. Lufthansa Group, I mean, in general, they, like you say, they're so large, they're so vertically integrated. Uh, I mean, it not only includes the the passenger airlines that, that you mentioned uh, and a few others, but they also have Lufthansa Cargo, so they're in the cargo uh, arena. There's a number of uh, partially owned airlines uh, around the world that they have uh, an interest in. Um, the non-airline subsidiaries, LSG Sky Chefs, Lufthansa Consulting, they do flight training, uh, just so many things that they really have a holistic view, I think, of the airline industry. And uh, I would think they would leverage that in as many ways as possible to not only provide really good service, but understand uh, the industry in a way that a uh, few others can't. But the MRO work they do, as I say, is uh, really outstanding uh, and uh, has been for many, many years. You know, um, having this arm it also gives them a lot of bargaining power when they're in talks with the airframers over aircraft and what they want from the airframer uh, to deliver in terms of aircraft interiors. Mm. So, you know, if you are Lufthansa and you're talking to Airbus and you say, we want this, this, this in our aircraft and, Luf- and, and Airbus says, well, we don't offer that as part of the catalog. You know, Lufthansa, tech, Lufthansa is able to go back and say, well, we've got Technic here and we can make it happen on our own. I mean, it does give you some serious leverage, if you could say. Yes. Um, and what's interesting is there's actually a faction of, in Airbus who will remain nameless that would actually love nothing better than to just deliver green aircraft <laughs> uh, to airlines and let them have added in a post-delivery retrofit modification world. Um, but what's fascinating about Lufthansa is if that if that ever came to a, a situation uh, of reality, they're uh, armed and ready <laughs> with with Lufthansa Technic. So, well, yeah. So, Paul, I hope uh, I hope that uh, we see you at one of these events then coming up soon. Maybe you can report back here as to what the latest is out of uh, this this massive MRO facility. Yeah, I would love to do that. That would be fun. Well, we're rapidly coming to a close, and we want to thank our listeners. Remember, you can find us online at runwaygirlnetwork.com and on iTunes. Be sure to follow all the Runway Girl Network activity on Twitter at at runwaygirl, and remember to use the Paxex hashtag when tweeting about the passenger experience. Join in the conversation. I'd love to reiterate our thanks to our sponsor, eGate Solutions, and I'd like to thank Paul for being our guest. Paul, where can listeners find you at? Uh, you could find me on Twitter at, at flyingphotog, like flying, P-H-O-T-O-G, um, and also the same thing on Instagram. Um, my Facebook writing page is facebook.com slash Paul Thompson Writer. Perfect. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Paul. 
So we'll ask all of you to join us again next time as we talk about the passenger experience on the PaxX podcast. Take care, everyone. Take care, everyone.